0: Let's take our Bibles on this cold, snowy winter day with a bunch of people who don't care if there's snow on the ground, like I'm still going to go to church, amen? All right, you doing okay? Y'all awake yet? Okay, this is going to be good stuff. Um, Ephesians chapter 2, uh, in your Bibles, if you don't have one, there should be one there. And um, like we say fairly often, if you don't have a Bible, that's that's fine. You do now, okay? You can take any one of those or from some of our, our members who really love their Bibles that stay in the lost and found for more than about six months. We just make the executive decision. They go feel free to get any one of those you can because apparently they found another one or uh, they need to start reading it. So we're going to look at today uh, the subject of the gospel from slavery to service. And here's kind of what we're driving towards today. And this is in your notes. So if you can you want to follow along, you should have received a bulletin worship guide when you came in here 's the driving thought, and it 's speaking of salvation, and we speak of salvation. Uh, it means that we are saved from ourselves. It means that we are saved from our desires that will ultimately bring us destruction. And in the future, if left to ourselves, we would end up in hell. So it is being saved from ourselves, being saved from the punishment that we would ultimately uh, get. And so the driving thought is this. um, You can never earn it, but once you've been given it, it being salvation, you can't help but live it. Amen? Okay, it's something that none of us, even collectively, if we got a committee on committees squared, even if we put all of our collective heads and intelligence together, none of us individually or together could ever earn it. But once you get really saved and God gives you the gift of salvation, it's something you realize you can't do anything to get. But once we have received it, it's like I can't help but live this out because it's such an amazing, amazing gift. But let's take just a moment to ask the Lord one more time to give us grace So that we can zone in, we can listen, we'll be able to resist distraction, we'll be able to understand this amazing, amazing teaching from God's Word. Because there's many of us here today that struggle with the question, am I good enough to stay saved? Or once I'm saved, if I mess up, does that mean that God doesn't love me now? That's a huge, huge topic So let's together, please pray with me that the Lord would help us to understand this and then then we can act on it. Let's pray. Lord, we believe that Your Word is truth. We believe that You are the One who has provided a way for us to be changed. And God, today, here in Rocky Mountain, Virginia, with snow on the ground, but Lord, Lord, with the fire that you have placed inside our hearts to serve you, we ask God that you would just open our hearts. And You would just take the truth of Your Word, the Gospel, and You would help us to understand it on an even deeper level. And Lord, for the ones here today that are trying and trying to be good enough to one day have You give them the word of approval and give them salvation, Lord, help them to realize there's nothing that they could ever do to earn that. And Lord, for the ones here today who think that because they walked down an aisle at a time in the past, that they somehow have fire insurance, would you break through that false hope, Lord, and just help them to see that once they meet you, you will change them. And Lord, you will help us to live like people who have been born again. In Jesus name. Amen. Bible says in Ephesians chapter two, beginning in verse one, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Following the course of this world following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. You guys getting the picture there that there are no good people? Verse 4. But God, being rich in mercy... might show the immeasurable riches of His grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace, you have been saved through faith. And this is not of your own doing, but is the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. For those of you who have been with us for a little while know that we walked through Ephesians chapter 2 a number of months ago in a series called Real Salvation, the Impact Series. This is absolutely life changing. Because if you notice there in the first Three verses, it's saying we're not just drowning, we're not just wounded, but we're what in verse 1? Dead. That means we need help. Y'all tracking with me this morning? Are Are you awake? You with me? Okay. If you're dead, you can't help yourself. And then it talks about, uh, in verse 2, you all once walked after the pattern of the world. It's speaking of Satan and and his rebellion against God, against pride and selfishness. And it's me first. It's me. I don't care what happens to anybody else. It's all about this guy. I, Topi Geith's song, I just want to talk about Who? me. That's what the Bible says all of us had the heart and the mind to do but then in verse number 4 but God. Don't you love that? It's kind of like God created the whole world. It was all perfect. Adam and Eve had everything that they could ever want but God said I'm going to give you one chance to show that you love me and not make you a robot. Here's the tree. Eat any of the trees but don't do this one and they say I want to do that. Right? Right? It's kind of like the parent who tells the kid, look honey, you can play all in your room, just don't get your toys and try to destroy things. What happens? They come back in the room, things are destroyed. It's the nature of a human. we see a sign that says don't walk on the grass, what do we want to do? Walk on the grass with our heels digging into the ground, alright? That's the nature of a human rebellious heart. But then God comes in and He says, not only am I going to give you the gift, but I'm going I'm to raise you up. I'm going to give you a desire to follow me. It's kind of like, I'm going to give you two metaphors here. And I don't think that any of us can understand this first one. This is all through the Bible, the New Testament. Um, the concept of a person being in slavery, but then being given their freedom. In America, it's illegal, and there is sex trafficking. If you want to do some research on that and get plugged in and give out, encourage you to do it. It's a terrible, terrible epidemic, but it is illegal. You cannot legally enslave a person here in America. It's kind of hard. We understand, like, man, that would be bad, and we we look at you know movies like Amistad or, or try to re- read history and understand like, what would it be like to have no rights. It would, it would kind of be the same a, 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 as like a, a farmer who has some cows, and if the cow dies, then he's kind of sad because he may lose some money, but he's not going to sit there and have um, five weeks of mourning, a funeral procession, and call all of his friends boohooing on the phone one of my 500 cows died because it's a business. I mean, can you imagine what it would be like? for the owner of you who's a human to have maybe a little less regard for you if you died to be considered like an animal but we can't really understand that maybe a better maybe a better picture would be something having to do with committing a crime or or let's say probably the greatest example that I know of for this how many of you have read the book Robinson Crusoe okay it's the book to where he is shipwrecked on that island And he's there and all he has is just a few things to stay alive. And he doesn't think that anybody else is living around there. And then one day, he looks out and he sees on the beach people. And they're not just people uh, who work at the next island over in the computer apartment. They are cannibals. And they have a man there. They've already cannibalized several victims. And they have a man and he's there. He's bound. He's chained. He's tied up. And Robinson Crusoe sees what they're about to do to the man. And the, what happens in the book, and by the way, if somebody would actually make this movie according to the book, it would be awesome. It would be amazing. And stop trying to filter all the good stuff out. And so what he does, it's almost like he goes Jack Bauer. Okay, he almost goes, if you're going to go back a little bit further in cinematography, he goes John Wayne on him. He goes Clint Eastwood. He grabs a pile of guns. He grabs a little hatchet. He grabs his sword. I mean, the, can you imagine seeing this guy? Big beard, and he goes and he he waits in ambush for a chance to save this guy he doesn't know. And you know what happens in the book? He confronts this group. He is outnumbered. He confronts the group and he begins to open fire and he kills the guys who are going to and this is a foreign thought for us, but it, it was a reality for most of the world's missionaries going into especially the Pacific Rim. In fact, there's a missionary named James Calvert who went to Fiji. okay, One of the surf Mecca spots today. Well, guess what the, the indigenous people there did? They ate other people who came. It was like, welcome! It's supper time. You know what a guy told James Calvert? He says... When you go among those heathen, you will die. And James Calvert says, we died before we even set sail. Because to live is Christ and to die is gain. This is a reality for most of the world's missions in the past. And he goes, and, and he saves, and he delivers this man. And this man, in the book, he just laid down, and he knelt down, and he bowed at the feet of Robinson Crusoe, and Robinson Crusoe gave him the name Friday, because that was the name, uh, the day of the week that he was saved on. I want to let you know, that is a small picture of what we were once like. We were bound in sin. Do you remember how it was before you got saved? Maybe you weren't an alcoholic, you weren't a drug addict, but you were bound in pride and and sin. And it was like you, you wanted to stop these things, but you couldn't stop these things. And one day Jesus showed up and He defeated the enemies, He defeated the captors, and He extended His hand. It's kind of like Jesus knocked open that prison door and the light shone in on your darkness and He offered you a chance to be saved. That's the Gospel. A captive cannot free themselves. Jesus is the one who frees the captives. So that's why that amazing verse. Look here with me in the in the book of Ephesians, chapter two, verse eight says, "For by what? For by grace. For by grace." Now, some of us, what we think grace is, is what you say before you eat, right? The the, the memorized prayers that little kids may pray, but but what exactly is grace? Let me give you what it is from uh, the dictionary um, from the Greek language of the New Testament. It's exceptional effect produced by generosity. The action of one who volunteers to do something not otherwise obligatory. In other words, grace is God going far above and beyond what He's obliged to do. What's a judge obliged to do for a person who's broken the law? Give them what? Justice. Are y'all okay this morning? Give them justice. Give them, give them what the law says. If you break this law, you get the book thrown at you. So when God gave us grace, it's literally God saying, you know what, I could give you justice and judgment, but what I'm going to do is I'm going to send my son who's going to take the punishment on himself so that you can go free. That's what the gospel is. So notice it says, For by grace you have been saved. What does it mean to be saved? It means to be delivered from certain destruction. It means to be delivered from... If you think back to survivors of the Titanic, when some people were in the water and one of those few lifeboats made their way to the person. And before that hypothermia completely took hold and they just lost the ability to even move and the muscle memory was no more, someone stuck out their hand or threw them a raft and, and they were saved. They were delivered. One of the greatest pictures in all the Bible is the, is the Red Sea, right? The Israelites are being pursued by the top-rate military in the world. They come to the Red Sea. They say, we are doomed. There's no way that we can get out there and swim across that huge expanse of water. God says, "I'm going to make you a way." Boom, bust it open. B- makes a way for them to get across to where even the ground was dry. The Egyptians follow afterwards, and God says, "It is payday someday." And today, you oppressors is your day. It's it, and the waters closed in and destroyed the number one military force in the world. The Israelites were delivered. And then notice what it says. It says, for by grace, what we don't deserve, you are saved, something that God does, through, oh boy, faith. Now, faith is one of the most loaded terms in our culture, is it not? We see it in movies and culture all the time. I'm a person of reason, and he or she is a person of faith. What would that type of, a statement communicate. It would communicate that if you have faith, then you don't have a brain. Right? We all together, like like people who have faith don't think. People who do think don't have faith. So therefore, if you have faith, that may be okay for you and you can go to church and cry and have your feelings made better, but at the end of the day, you're really an unintelligent person. Nothing is further from the truth. In fact, all through the Bible, God is revealing that He is the one true God. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Romans 1 says we can look and we can see God's evidence all around us. The evidence of design. And if that wasn't enough, God called the shots way back in the book of Genesis in chapter 15 and chapter 12. God's saying things like, I'm going to send a deliverer to you. I'm going to send someone who's going to fix what Adam and Eve broke. He is going to be the Messiah. Now, how in the world would those people back in the ancient Near East have any idea of what that would be? But God called it. He even called shots like, okay, by the way, when the Messiah is born, He will be born in a little bitty town called Bethlehem. I mean, at least if they were talking about generalities, they would have chosen some place like Jerusalem or Rome. Amen? Amen? All right? But they chose a little tiny place. If that wasn't specific enough, God's like, okay, just for you doubters, I'm going to tell you that when the Messiah is killed, not one of his bones will be broken. His hands will be pierced. And when David wrote that prophecy around 1000 BC, every historian will acknowledge that no one even knew of crucifixion at that time. It's kind of like David's writing the Psalm and he's like, say what, Lord? Okay, and he writes it, and lo and behold, a thousand years later in the Roman Empire, crucifixion was the form of death for the worst of the worst, and the Lord Jesus died in that way. God shows all through the Bible that He is to be trusted. But notice what it says here. It is by faith. It doesn't mean checking your brain at the door. It simply means placing your trust in Jesus, who is trustworthy. And notice it says, and this is not your own doing. It is the what? Help me out, church. The gift of God. Now, here's the question. Why did God do it in such a way? Why did He organize salvation to where we can't do anything to earn it? Well, I mean, we just think about back in the Bible, right? Like Nebuchadnezzar. Remember Nebuchadnezzar the the king of Babylon? He got up on the top level of, of his kingdom and he looked out and he says, Look at the great country and the great kingdom that I have built by the power of my might. And he just went on like a me fest rampage. It's very easy to be proud. Let me give you an example. Four or five-year-old boy. You walk up to him, you say, Show me your muscle. You ever see the look that comes on a little boy's face when you say, Show me your muscle? He just gets that face like, everybody, go ahead and put on your seatbelts because something big is about to happen. (laughs) I want to make sure you adults don't... Pull anything on this? And he pulls up that sleeve. And some of those kids, they don't even know how to flex right. You say, show me your muscle. And they, they're like, you know that. And they, they don't even know how to do it. But man, he flexes that muscle. And then you will say, wow, that's awesome. And you, can, you do it. You, you do it to your kid or grandchild. I mean, and you notice the look that comes on that face like, tell me something I don't already know obviously that 's impressive because it 's not only a big muscle but it 's my muscle or the, the, then let's let 's be a little, a little bit more more honest um, sometimes like, like a, a young girl and she 's told her whole life wow you 're so beautiful you 're so beautiful if not, if not." I guess we could say guarded by godly parents, what's going to happen is when she gets older, she's going to be one of those ladies to where she thinks that the world revolves around her because she is beautiful, and her job in life is to make sure that everybody else knows it. It's called pride. And then can you imagine how it would be, notice once again, let's get this verse in our head, it says in verse 8, and this, speaking of the grace through faith being saved, is not your own doing. In other words, it's not of works. It's the gift of God. Can you imagine, just for a second, if this verse had been changed and if God had organized salvation in such a way to where it was like Jesus gives us the right hand of fellowship and then we kind of pull ourselves up by our own bootstraps and we pitch in, okay? Okay. It may just be 5%, 10 15%, maybe 1%. But if we could do something to help ourselves get saved, can you imagine what it would be like in heaven? Here's kind of like what it would be in heaven. If you can just imagine what it would be like for open mic night in heaven. Can you imagine if that was the case? Those of you all, you know, college back in the day, open mic night, get up there, do a song, do a speech, do a poem. I mean, somebody would get up there and, and the title of it is How You Got to Heaven. And in the Bible, imagine if it said something like, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is partially your own doing, and also the gift of God. What if the text read like that? You would have person after person get up and say things like, well, you know, the Lord was really good to me, and giving me a chance to be saved... But I also was able to gut it out too. You know, I was able to even in the times of difficult difficulty, God gave me the strength, but boy I did a good job. And some of the guys like hey, let me tell you, Heaven, even when my wife went into MM, you know, Medusa mode and she was, you know, throwing things in the house and she was angry, I, I, I still persevered and I still gut it out. And then can you imagine some of the some of the people all across heaven telling and you ever notice how some people try to brag but they don't do it openly? You ever notice that? Like they try to tell you how awesome they are without coming straight out and telling you how awesome they think they are. And the type of person too, that when you're in a conversation, they don't ever listen to you. They just wait for you to stop talking so they can start talking about who? Themselves. And people, imagine if we're in heaven and we're telling everybody about what we did to get there. And then all of a sudden, people are cheering and, and they just kind of that, that pride wells up inside like, That's right. Who's strong? Jesus, but I'm with Jesus. And you think it's good for just a second until the next person gets up and tries to top your story. Until the next person gets up and tries to top the last story. And after a while, heaven would be worse than hell. Because please hear me, at least in hell, it is fashionable to scream blasphemies against Almighty God. At least in hell, it is fashionable and in style to hear screaming and gnashing of teeth forever and ever. But in heaven, it would still be our same selfish, unregenerate hearts, but we would have to mask that with hypocrisy for all of eternity. Can you imagine being in a place with people to where you know that everybody is out for themselves, nobody really cares about Christ or you, but you can't ever just not Knock somebody out cold because you're in heaven and you have to be nice. Heaven would eventually be worse than hell. But what heaven will be, in fact, this is from the Wycliffe Bible commentary. It says, and I quote, there will be no boasting in heaven because there will be no one there who has anything to boast about. In heaven, the book of Revelation, and we've studied this many times before, we've referenced it in sermons. When it's, when John is given the vision of what heaven will be, it's kind of like the camera pans to wide angle, and he sees an innumerable multitude. We're talking about crowd upon crowd upon crowd, and everybody is directing their praise to Jesus, to the Lamb who was slain. And not that Jesus is some weak lamb. It also says that Jesus is the Lion of the tribe of Judah. Which means He's more powerful than we could ever imagine. And everybody there is noticeably not pointing attention to one person. And that is themselves. Heaven's going to be a place and a time to where we give to Jesus all the praise because maybe we will understand what it says. For by grace you've been saved through faith and it's not of yourselves because the reason is lest anyone should boast. Let me give you um, a few insights here for often people in church who say, Jeff, I believe that the Gospel is by grace through faith, but don't I have to do something to keep God's favor upon my life? Don't I have to continue to be good in order for God to give me the thumbs up? Let me give you a verse. You can write this down if you're taking notes. Titus chapter 3, beginning in verse 4. The Bible says, "...but when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us, not because of works done... "...by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior." Verse 7, "...so that being justified by His grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life." That means that you can never, I can never, we can never, ever in a million years, even if we color within the lines, even if we attend Sunday school every Sunday, we can never, ever be good enough to earn God's gift of salvation. And if we do not understand that, Satan will keep us like the song, like a rat in a cage... Always thinking that God's love for us depends upon what we do, and secondly, you can never be good enough to keep God's forgiveness or salvation. Now, now this this word here um, that we find, and this is this is so awesome in verse eight. The word, or the phrase. You have been saved for by grace. You have been saved. Let me give you three points about that that often when we just read the Bible, we gloss over. This is going to hopefully paint a brand new and extended a deeper picture of salvation. Number one in the original language, this word you have been saved or the word for saved is in the perfect tense. The perfect tense means something that has happened in the past, but it has a present result and a future hope. Isn't that awesome? Amen? If the Bible had said, you have been saved, aorist or past tense, it would mean that it was just a one thing that happened. Right? Like I was, I went to the football game in 1999. I voted in 2000. Or I bought the house in 2004. Or my house got egged in 2008. Or whatever it is, it would be a one-time event. But the fact that the Bible says that it's in the perfect tense, it means that salvation is a past reality. A present reality. A future reality. And not only that, it's in the passive voice. It means that we receive the action of the verb. It means that we receive the gift of salvation. Once again, go back to verse 1. And you were, help me out church, you were what in trespasses and sins? You were dead. So it's God who does the saving. And often we say, well, I know that God saves me. I mean, golly, Jeff, I understand that it's not me who's the one who, who saves myself. But often we get in... The mindset of thinking that God saves us, but we stay saved by being good. That's not what the text teaches. Third, it's also a participle or an ING word. In other words, it's saying um, that you have been saved, you are saved, and God will continue to save you from yourself. Isn't that good news? It's a perfect, passive participle. Just throw that out on the conversation today, right? People say, what do you think about the game against the Broncos and the New England Patriots last night? You say present active participle, right? Because you don't want to talk about how Tebow lost. It means that it's a continual thing. Now, this is, this is huge. Often, even in Baptist churches, we, we, we go over this, that the fact that we're saved means that God is continually saving us. It means that, yes, He did deliver us. He gave us life he gave us a new heart, a new mind, new desires back when we got saved. But it means that it wasn't like God said, okay, I'm going to save you here in 2012 and then I'll let you do, you know, whatever. I don't care. It's just your life. Uh, bon Jovi's song. And then over here, whenever you die, I'm going to save you from hell. Well, the text doesn't say that. The text says that every moment of our life we're experiencing the grace of God through salvation. And I hope that that's good news for you because all of it goes back to that phrase and this is not your your own works. Amen? It is all through the grace of God. It is all through His mercy and His care for us that He says, I'm going to save you. I'm going to keep you saved because by the way, I don't know how many accident prone people we have in here today, but every single one of us have a deadly accident proneness towards sin, don't we? That's why the Bible tells us time and time again to guard ourselves. And if salvation could be lost, number one, go with me on this. God would have a big, big problem because here's how strong God would be. Think about this. God would need our help. How strong is a God who would need our help? If we could just not take ourselves so serious sometimes, we say, boy, that is a messed up deity. Amen? I mean, if God needs our help, then my goodness, what else does He need help with? And how many things have we botched when we've tried to help with it? So the fact that God saves, that He keeps us saved, brings us to our third aspect for those... You say, man, I've raised in the church, and I always think that God's going to lose His favor on my life. Number three, you must accept that you can't, and that Jesus did everything necessary to keep you saved. Notice what the text says; it says, "the gift of God." You ever been for maybe it's Christmas or it's just out of the blue, someone gives you a gift, and it's a really nice gift. Isn't that kind of awkward sometimes? Nobody. A few, okay. Like somebody gives you a gift and you're like, okay, what do they need help with? Do they need me to co sign a note? Do they need me to, to sign bail? Like like what caused this? Because we know ourselves, we know them, and sometimes we we say, Oh, you you shouldn't have, and we're thinking we're thinking in our mind, okay, what which store am I going to go to first off to buy a gift to give back to them so that it won't be so lopsided? And that's often what we think about God's gift of grace. We think, God, if you gave me this gift of grace, I've got to give you something back to keep it. No, it's a gift. The action point here, write this down if you're taking notes. Philippians chapter 1 verse 27, it says, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. Jeff, how, how, okay, but you're saying I don't have to give back to keep it. Well, well, what am I? How am I supposed to live my Christian life? What we do with our Christian life is because we've been given what we could never earn or deserve. Everything that we do should be a thank you for that. Amen. I mean, salvation is that amazing, and God has saved us from hell and saved us from ourselves and given us purpose and cleansed our hearts. If he's if he's wiped clean the slate of our conscience. If He's broken the chain of addictions, then it's not like we say, Lord, I want to give You my life so that I can earn what You already gave me. That doesn't make any sense, does it? What we do is we say, because You saved me, I want to serve You. Because in the story of Robinson Crusoe, because Robinson Crusoe saved Friday from a horrific death, Friday served him as a willing servant because he understood that his life was in debt to Robinson Crusoe. And that's actually something if you go back and study culture, sometimes if you saved a person in many cultures in the past, that person will automatically, based upon their honor, say, I swear allegiance to you to be your servant till I die. Because had you not been here today, I would not be having any more life. Not one second. And that's the way it is with a follower of Jesus Christ. It's literally saying that we don't Follow Christ. Go to verse number 10. We don't do good works. It says we're created in Christ Jesus for good works. And we don't do good works so that we can get saved. We do good works and we follow Christ because we want to do what He desires. And that's what the Gospel's about. And then there's somebody often who says, well, you know, Jeff, that may be good and fine, but I got saved one time, but I don't care about the Lord. I don't read my Bible. I don't have a desire to. I don't have a desire for church. It bores me to tears. And I hate your sermons when they go above the standard um, dead church sermon time, which is around 20 minutes. I hate that. I wish I could not ever come. But I'm saved. Um, also, there's in the life of that person, there's a, no fruit of repentance. There's no fruit that they've ever actually turned and trusted Christ. There's no fruit of the Holy Spirit. When the people who know them best, there's no love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, Goodness, gentleness, self-control. their selfishness. They're quick to condemn. They don't understand forgiveness. When someone says, why don't you forgive the person? They, it's like you, would just, you have just told them that they should just burn their own house to the ground. That is the stupidest thing they could possibly ever conceive because the person doesn't deserve forgiveness. Wake up call. That's us and God. Amen, church? The fact that a person refuses to forgive is huge evidence that they have never been forgiven. Want to understand? One of the greatest proofs that we have been born again by the Spirit of God is the world says five eyes for one eye, five teeth for one teeth, or for one tooth. Uh, but you like that, right? Five teeth. okay. The Bible tells us that Jesus Christ gives us the power to forgive. And somebody said, oh, "Hold on, Jeff. you're trying to make me feel guilty." No, no, no. I'm trying to help us understand that it's something that we can't earn, but when it's been given to us, we can't help but live it out. Which means that if somebody gives a testimony like, "Well, yeah, I'm saved. I was baptized. I came down the aisle, and all that stuff. I'm a member of a church. If I don't go. I don't support. The, I don't support missions. I don't do. This, but I'm saved." No, no, you're not. James chapter 2, verse 19 deals with the automatic response, the rebuttal. Somebody said, well, now, hold on, Jeff. I believe in God. James chapter 2, verse 19 says that you believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and they shudder and they tremble. So really, what we could say is a life that has not been changed, but believes that God is one, is a good candidate for the upstanding demons club. Alright? That's what the Bible says. So the question of all questions is really this. How can a person encounter the God of the universe like it says in Ephesians 1-10? through How can we experience that kind of grace given what we are and not be changed? So usually we have two kinds of people in the church. One person has been saved, but they're trying with everything that they have to be so good that God will keep them saved. They live in fear. And often, you know what that goes back to for most People. A lot of people have been raised in homes to where mom and dad have had, at best, a conditional love. A conditional love that says, if you make good grades, I will give you affection. I will give you love. I will give you encouragement. If you do not give good grades, you are no longer my son. If you do well, I love you. If you do not do well, I do not love you. And then we think that God is like that. But what God is saying is because you could never be lovable on your own, I chose to overcome your unlovableness by my great love. Amen? As first John says it was not us who loved God first, but he loved us first. And some people say, Now hold on, Jeff, I've, I've been baptized. No, you've been wept. Baptism is for those who have been believers. No fruit, no root. John Phillips says, good works are a part of God's plan. They are not the price of salvation, but they are the proof. Then somebody said, no, hold on Jeff, I'm backslidden. Okay, well if you've slid back, then doesn't that mean you have to have slid forward at some time? Let me say that again. If, if you claim to be a backslider, that means that there had to be a point in your life, a period, an epoch, to where you really slid forward and were serving the Lord. But the kind of quote unquote Christians who make a profession of faith, but then their lives remain unchanged, are the ones that Jesus points out in Matthew chapter 7 and he says, by their fruits you shall know them. In other words, all of the outward decor does not mean that the heart has been changed if the life never does. Say so Jeff, why why would you this is kind of like an awkward, awkward thing that we got going on in here. You, you, you don't understand. I, why would you talk about this? Because Jeff, I've got issues. Welcome to the club. You know what a Christian really is if we could give it an alternate definition? A Christian is a person who understands and listen, they have so many issues they would never be able to solve them and they come to Jesus and He's the one who helps them get rid of their issues. Christians are not these perfect people who live in little picket, white picket uh, fence houses and, and their children are like leave it to beaver and there's never a disagreement or an argument. I, I mean, that's That's not reality. Reality is that Christians have crazy pasts. I mean, look, look, here, look at the guys that Jesus used to change the world. Paul. Before he was Paul, he was Saul. He was a Christian killer. Peter, pulling out his sword trying to decapitate people. John and Mark, cowards, who when the group came to jump Jesus and drag Him to be killed, they all left. We could go down the list. In fact, there's a great book out by John MacArthur called 12 Ordinary Men. Maybe a more apt title is 12 Losers. Let's be honest. I'm not, I'm not, I'm, we're, not, we're not doing a condemnatory thing. But just honestly, when you look at them, you're almost say to Jesus, I believe that you rose from the dead, but were you really doing the right thing when you chose those guys? We're going to study something here in uh, not too long here on Sunday morning in the, in the Sunday school classes that, that God building His church is using all the wrong people. So if you've got issues, if you've got problems, that's why Jesus offers His gift of salvation to take those from you. That's what's so great about Jesus. I wrote this down so I wouldn't forget it. That's what's so great about Jesus. He takes issue-laden people Some with so many issues that they're virtually a magazine and he provides deliverance from those issues a way out. So the fact that we've got problems in no way causes us to not be able to serve the Lord. You say, Jeff, how should I receive this gospel? What should I do with this? Here's the thing. If you have been saved, but you struggle with does God approve of me? God approves of you based upon who you are in Christ. God approves of you because of who your Savior is, and that's Jesus. So here's our final two responses. How should we respond to this? Number one, receive it by faith. Live it by faith. And secondly, um, receive it by faith. And secondly, live it by faith. You see, that's often where it happens. We say we get saved by grace through faith, but when I live it, I want to live it in my own strength. No, you live your Christian life based on the gospel because the gospel got you here and the gospel is what's going to bring you to heaven when you die. Let's bow our heads and close our eyes. As we come to this time of commitment for those who struggle with am I good enough? With wanting to please the Lord, but you say, Jeff, I don't ever know if I, if I do please the Lord. This is a time in your Christian life, this time of commitment here on Sunday morning to where you just say, Lord, I know that I could never earn it. I could never be good enough to keep it. So right now, by faith, I'm saying, Lord, I believe that You are the one who can keep me saved. Just tell that to the Lord right now. Say, Lord, I believe that You are strong enough to do what I cannot do. Say, Lord, I believe that You're strong enough to to, to conquer those things in my life that I'm unable to. And just let this be a time between you and the Lord that you say, Lord Jesus, I'm asking you to help me every day to understand that it is your grace that got me here. It's your grace that's keeping me saved and it's your grace that's going to take me home to heaven when I die. And then secondly, for the one you say, Jeff, I I made a commitment in church, but. The fabric of my life shows that I do not have the desire for God. My finances show that I do not value Him. The way that I talk, the way that I talk about people, the way that I live my life, if I step back and I examine it based upon the New Testament, everything in my life that should not be in the life of a believer is there. I don't have the fruit of the Spirit I've never truly repented. You say, Jeff, if the truth be known, even though I may be a member of a church or I got wet one day, I've not truly been saved and born again. I'm going to give you a chance right now to by faith, give Jesus your life and ask him to save you and change you and be your boss, your master, your Lord. And if you don't understand your need for Jesus, I just want to let you know there is a point in a man wants to die and after this, the judgment. If you're playing church, if you think that God doesn't know, if you think that you can do it one day, the overwhelming evidence is that when that day comes, you will have hardened your heart to such an extent that you won't even want to get saved even if God gave you the chance to do it then. That's why the Bible says today is the day of salvation. I'm going to give you a chance here in just a moment to ask the Lord to save you. And then we're going to have an invitation. We're going to stand and we're going to sing. We're going to ask whoever from wherever in this room, whether you know you need to follow Christ in baptism, whether you know you need to be genuinely saved, whether you want to join this church, whether you need to come here to the front and just pray for people, or you just want to say, you know what, Lord, I just want to give you praise and kneel down and say thank you for your incredible gift, your unspeakable gift of salvation. We're going to ask you to come out of your seat in just a few moments if, that's, if you're willing to do that and if it's real. But right now, if you've never been born again and the Holy Spirit is showing you that in your heart, confess your sin, which means not make an excuse for it. Say the same thing. Admit to the Lord that you're a sinner and give Him your life. Say, Lord, right now I'm giving it to you. Turning, I'm receiving you by faith. I'm repenting, God, please save me. You give that to the Lord right now, and we begin to sing. We're going to give you a chance to show everyone and the Lord that you're ready to walk out in faith. Walking down the aisle doesn't save you, but it's letting the Lord and everyone else know that you're serious. Father, we ask that you would use this time to your glory, and you would draw people to be saved. And you would help us who have been saved to never overestimate or never underestimate the gift of the gospel. In Jesus' name. Amen.